0: Learn all about investing in real estate in New Bedford, Massachusetts, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to New Bedford. Plus, syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to New Bedford. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr. I'm going to be the one giving the presentation today. Oh my goodness. Uh, happy Thanksgiving in advance everybody. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving for those that are uh, not attending live listen to the recording. Hope you guys are doing some fun stuff. Uh, if you guys have any questions throughout the webinar, go ahead and uh, ask questions in the chat window. I'll try to read them out and go through that. This is a brand new presentation. We've never really done it before. So um, should be good though. So it should be good. We're gonna go over all the different ways that rules work and that you can use to model your portfolio and kind of test things out and see how things are going, especially in this kind of crazy changing real estate market. Uh, things are things are moving around quite a bit. Let's just say it that way. So thanks for all who attended live. All right. So let's get, let's jump right into the content. So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background first about like why we're even talking about rules and how things work. You, um, you'll kind of get some information here, but we're not going to cover everything. I just don't have time to kind of teach a full day class on this whole thing. So maybe I'll come back and teach some other parts, but honestly, it's it's not that hard. Rules are probably the most complicated part, and I probably need to do a deep dive into each one to show you like how some different options work. But today I'm going to show you how all the different ones work and then how you can go and apply them to your specific situation. So scenarios. A scenario is like a grouping mechanism for all the different specific parts of the plan. So first of all, you make a scenario, and then once you get all the stuff set up inside your scenario with all the different accounts and all the different properties and all the different rules, then you can make a copy of the entire scenario, change one or two things, and compare them to see how they perform against each other. For example, just a really basic example to give you an idea of like where we're headed with this. You might go create a scenario where you model out your entire investing strategy. You know, I've owned, I own these particular properties right now. I've got this much money in all these different accounts and I'm going to buy properties as I get as I come up with down payments until I come up with 10 properties. And then you may say, okay, that's strategy number one, scenario number one. But I want to go ahead and add a a variation on this. And I want to see what happens if I decide to pay off my properties faster. And so you might make a copy of that scenario and then add an additional rule to the second scenario that says pay off properties with extra cash flow. And then you can compare one where you have the the basic model, your, your strategy that you're going to implement. And then the one where you pay off properties early and you can see how much better or worse paying off properties early is for you in that specific situation, that specific strategy. So that's an example of where we're headed. So how you do this is you have a scenario and then inside the scenario, you add all of your accounts and accounts are nothing more than a place for you to store money. So you, you might want to have an account where you have all your stock market investments or an account where you have all of your bonds or an account where you have you know your retirement funds, uh, an account where you have... Um, all your crypto, if you're still doing that stuff. You know All the different things that you have that, where you store money and they have different rates of return and different characteristics if you're like got you know, pre-tax money versus post-tax money. You might wanna separate those out. The, the trick is simplify down so that you only have the maximum number of accounts, the minimum number of accounts that you can before you have to do more. So um, as one example, if you normally in real life have a separate account for each property, for doing your modeling, you probably don't want to do that. And the reason why is then you got to manage getting money from one account to another account in order to be able to aggregate it to buy your next property. If you just say, look, this represents the sum of all of the property accounts that I have, then you could do it that way. So big picture, you've got the scenario. Now you've got all the different accounts that you've got set up for all the different things. In the beginning, as as just like a tip, just make one account. If you've got more complicated things to, to model later, you can always go do that. But If you're just starting out, just do one account and kind of do it that way. Um, And then accounts can also, as kind of like a more advanced side note, an account can also represent things like what a business is worth to you. If you think about it, an account really is just a place to store money. So if you say, you know, this represents a business that I own, it's got about a million dollar net worth, and you can go ahead and model the income from it somewhere else, you can sort of do it that way too. Okay, so scenarios, accounts, now you've got properties. So inside the scenario, you've got all the different accounts you have, which is all the different places to store money. And then you've got all your properties, all the single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, any commercial buildings, any apartments, any industrial buildings, basically any real property that has characteristics like appreciation rates and rents and um, you know taxes and insurance and all those other things. That is another thing. And we break down properties into two major groups, any properties that you already own, So each one of those is an exact property that you own. And then we don't allow you to make copies. Well, I just have to be careful of how I word this. You can make a copy of a already owned property as like a starting point to make another one, but you can't buy more than one of a property that you already own in the same scenario. So any already owned properties you have, just go ahead and add all those as already owned. And then we have this thing called dynamic properties. And really they're just templates. They're, they represent a property that you might buy more than one of over time. So you can go in there and say, look, I've got a, a typical three bedroom, two bath type property that I'm going to be buying more than one of. Right now they're worth this amount of money. Right now they collect this much in rent. Right now their taxes are this and their insurance are this. And over time, the price is going to go up. And over time, the rents are going to go up. And over time, insurance and taxes are going to adjust on this thing. But I might buy... One of them this year, one of them two years from now, one of them four years from now. And so we call those dynamic properties, or you might hear me refer to them as template properties, where you use rules, which we're going to get to in a second, in order to buy more than one of those. So, and any of the properties, whether they're already owned or dynamic, can be single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplex, apartments, commercials, you know, industrial, any type of building that you have, any type of real property that you have that you want to do that. So again, big picture scenarios inside scenarios as accounts and properties, and then. What we're going to talk about mostly today is how do you manipulate an account or how do you manipulate a property? That's what you use rules for. So, rules go ahead and they say, you know, add money to an account or, um, you know, increase the rent I'm getting on a property or buy three of these properties or buy a property every year or um, start paying off properties with any extra cash I have in this account. Rules are things that manipulate accounts and properties in the scenario that you can do. So as we go through this, we're going to go through all the different rules types. Um, and, and what you should be doing, in my opinion, is think about your specific situation and how you might apply these rules to you and the setup that you're going to do in the Real Estate Financial Planner software. And if you don't have an account, you can go ahead and make an account. They're free. Go to realestatefinancialplanner.com. Go ahead and make a free account. And you could be playing around with this as you listen in the background, although might be better to pay attention and then you can go back and play with it on your own, but you know, do whatever you want to do. So, real estatefinanceyplanner.com, you can go make your account. But I would suggest you think about your situation and why we might have a rule in the first place for doing this because it might give you ideas on things you might be able to do or test in your scenario to see if hey, maybe I should recast my mortgages or maybe I should. Pay off my properties, or maybe I shouldn't take all my extra cash and pay off my properties over time. There may be a reason James made a specific rule that says, Hey, only pay off properties if you have a lump sum and big enough to pay off the whole thing, which there is a reason for doing that. But I'll let you discover it on your own because you're going to go ahead and model this in your own stuff. So that's the thinking. So if you're going to go create a scenario, kind of a a strategy that you're going to model for yourself, the order that you should do them in is you should make a scenario. And a scenario is this bucket that you're gonna hold these accounts and properties and rules in. So you make the scenario first. There's a couple of questions about the assumptions for the scenario. But then the next thing you do is you go create all of your accounts and you make sure your accounts are attached to the scenario because you can have five different scenarios and have certain accounts in certain scenarios and certain ones that do not get put in certain scenarios. So an account is like like a module you can use to have in one or more different scenarios. Then once you're done making all your accounts, then I recommend you go make your properties and your properties are going to reference, you know, where do you want to use, where do you want to use as the source for your down payments, for your properties, which account, and which account do you want to deposit your rents and get your expenses out of from there? So really in, in order to do it, in order, you should make scenarios, then you should make your accounts, and then you should make your properties because the properties are gonna use the accounts and you're gonna to wanna to put those in the scenarios to do that. So there's it's helpful to do it in this order. Of course, you can add an account later, you can add a property later, it's not required, but it's helpful if you had, go ahead and do those in order. And then finally, once you're done making the accounts and the properties, you usually make the rules to manipulate what's happening with the accounts and what's happening with the properties. And today, this morning, we're gonna be focused in on step number four, rules. With that being said, so once you go in there and you make your scenario, at the bottom of the page on the scenario is the list of your different rules. And there's a big old button that says, create new rule. If you click on the button, create new rule, you're gonna be shown a page that looks like this monstrosity on the right, which is just a list of all the different rule types that there are. And don't stress, because that is what we're gonna be covering today. I'm gonna go over what all the different ones mean and how you might use them so that you're not confused when you go in there and you start playing around with different rules. Okay, let me make sure I check my notes. Yeah, so we're gonna basically be focused on what the rule does and when you might wanna use it. That's what my goal is today is to kind of talk about what each rule does and when you might wanna use it. I'm not gonna go into the, because it would be overwhelming for you. If I went through and I walked you through each of the options for the different rules and how to set it up, not gonna do that. Today is gonna be, hey, look, here are all the different rules and a whole bunch of different ideas for how you might want to model your own real estate investing strategy, what you should be doing and to see how it all works out. So what you when you might want to use it is kind of what we're covering there. Okay. So with that being said, if you notice on this right-hand side, for those that can see the image, if you're listening to the audio, don't stress, I'm going to go over it in detail, but on the right-hand side there's different groups. There's a group for buying properties, for selling properties, for impacting mortgages, for adjusting scenarios accounts and properties and for other rules. So all I did is I just broke down and I said, "Hey, These are what the basic groups do. So if you're looking for a rule that does a specific thing, you may want to look under this heading. It's like groups of different rules. So buying properties, there's rules that are all about buying properties. You use these rules to buy dynamic. In other words, the template properties. You do not use these rules to buy anything that's already owned. You either need to have the property in in your scenario as already owned, or you do not. So you don't use rules to buy properties that you already own. It's another way for me saying that. So you use these rules for buying properties to buy any template properties. And the template properties, again, are just ones that you've set up that you say, look, I might want to buy you know, a duplex in the future or five duplex in the future or uh, an apartment building that looks sort of like this or 10 apartment buildings that look sort of like this. So you either can make different dynamic properties with slight variations, or you can make one say, yeah, it's I'm going to be buying properties that sort of look like this and I'll buy 10 of them or five of them or seven of them or 14 of them or whatever you want to do. Okay. Um, And you can't buy more than one or buy an already owned property again later in the scenario. I already talked about that. So group number one, buying properties. Group number two, selling properties. And we can sell properties in a variety of ways, but these are all the different rules about selling properties. You can sell already owned properties. You can sell um, template properties. And so these are different rules for saying, look, buy a property, own it for two years, then sell it. Buy a property when the When the return on equity drops below a certain ratio, then sell that and then use the proceeds using a different rule to buy more of them. So you could do stuff like that. So we're gonna have a whole set of rules about selling properties. We have a whole set of rules that impact mortgages, like pay off mortgages with extra cash flow, or pay off mortgages when I have a big lump sum or pay off mortgages if after doing the calculation, I could then achieve financial independence if I paid off these mortgages or recast a mortgage. And recasting a mortgage for those that don't know, is let's say you have $10,000 that you got. Got a bonus from work or whatever it is, $10,000. If you go down to the bank, if you just, let's do this first. If you send in the $10,000 to your mortgage company and you pay down your mortgage by $10,000, your monthly payment does not change. The amount of time you have left on your mortgage comes in. So if you had 20 years left on your mortgage and you paid $10,000, now your mortgage might come in by, you have to do the math because it changes over time, but it might come in by two years. Okay, so you have two years. You'll pay off your mortgage two years faster if you just make the regular payments from then on. If you just sent the ten thousand dollars in or with some mortgage companies, you could take that ten thousand dollars. You could go into the bank or or call them up on the phone and say, look, I would like to recast my mortgage. And they say, "Okay, um, if you send us the ten thousand dollars, we will go ahead and restructure your mortgage so that it still pays off in the same amount of time. But your monthly payment goes down by, let's call it $100 a month. They do a calculation to figure out what the new math would be so that it pays off still in that same amount of time. And now you can reduce the amount of your monthly payment, improve your cash flow, as an example by recasting your mortgage. And they may charge you a fee to do that, by the way. They may say, hey, it's uh, you know 500 bucks to do it, uh, but we'll recast your mortgage. So you pay the $10,000 or you pay 9,500 and they take the 500 out for recasting your mortgage and they, they do that. So that's what recasting a mortgage is. And there's a rule to do it, which we'll talk about. Or you might have a rule to refinance a property. So we'll talk about that too. Then we have another set of rules for adjusting scenarios or accounts or properties. Let's say... And I'll, I'll get into the details. I'm going to go over all the different rules. But let's say, as an example, you say, hey, at some point in, um, in five years from now, on whatever that date is, <laughs> what is today, on a, a Thanksgiving of 2027, I am going to hire a property manager. And then I'm going to have my property management fee go from 0% to 10% on my properties. Well, you can use a rule that starts five years in the future that's go ahead and uh, sets the property management and all your properties to be 10%. That's what you can do by adjusting different values on all these different things. That's just one example. And then I have kind of like a catch all miscellaneous bucket doing other things like moving money between your accounts, um, creating income from a job, rebalancing a set of uh, accounts. Like you have, uh, you wanna do 50% in stocks and 25% in bonds and 25% in cash. We have a rule that will automatically rebalance your account balances by moving money between the two. Or ones that might do like uh, simulate market corrections, like you know what happens if property values are not always going up by two, three, four, five, six, seven percent. What if we see a period of time where property values decline, and maybe that doesn't happen this year. Maybe it happens next year for two years, and maybe it happens ten years in the future for five years. So we could use rules to kind of do things like that for market corrections, or maybe you want to say. You know, I don't know when this market correction is gonna happen, so let's have it be random. And I don't know how big it's gonna be. It could be 2% down, it could be 15% down, it could be 50% down, we don't know. And so you can go ahead and set these rules up and say, it's gonna happen at some random point in the future and you can set the frequency and all sorts of stuff. And, and we don't know how big it's gonna be. Maybe it's gonna be, you know, somewhere between zero and 20 or zero and 50, whatever you wanna set up for your kind of rules to model all that stuff. And then you can see how your particular portfolio The strategy that you're planning on doing is impacted by all of these changes. And the idea is you make scenario A, which is your baseline kind of like model. This is what I think I want to do. And then let me test out, should I pay off my properties and how much better or worse is that? And then you can compare the two scenarios on the same chart and look at a whole bunch of things like, how does this impact cash flow? How does this impact all the different things that we measure as risky, like your debt to income ratio or your resiliency or uh, the, the months of reserves you have, or how much faster does A versus B get me to financial independence? And you can look at all those different things to do that. Okay. Before I go on, because I think I'm going to get into the rules next, does that make sense to everybody? If, if at least one person can tell me, yeah, that makes sense. Good job, James. Keep going. Uh, or or I'm really confused. You should stop now because we're not going to get very much further. If you could put the chat window, that'd be awesome. No one. No one is responding. Unbelievable. Okay. Okay, good. Then ben at least this. Okay, this is awesome. All right. I appreciate it guys. Thank you for participating. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's talk about the rules to buy properties. There are two different rules to buy properties. Buy properties on a specific month yearly or buy a property when an account has a down payment. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. Someone said, uh, I'm following along, but uh, might get behind if I'm doing something else. Yeah. No worries. Okay. That's cool. Okay, so rules to buy properties. So there's two different rules that we have to buy properties. And you might think, man, you should have a lot more complicated rules than this. Honestly, this really is sort of all we need. You buy a property on a specific monthly year. And by, oh, oh, as an aside, if you're listening to this, you're like, James, how how do I do X, Y, Z, and you can't figure it out? Just drop me an email. Drop me an email. Let's go to the support page. Drop me an email and say, look, you know, how do I do this? And I'll tell you either you can't do it, or here's how you do it, or um. I should make a rule for that because it just didn't occur to me to do that. But a couple of rules have come about because someone said to me, hey, James, how do you do this? I'm like, you know, you really should be able to do that. We've never done that modeling before, but it makes a lot of sense that you should do it that way. Uh, let me go ahead and make the rule for you. And then we, I've gone, it took a little while, like a couple of days, something like that, the rule, but I made the rule. No promises It's going to happen in a couple of days for you. All right, so buy properties on a specific month yearly. You use this rule to buy a property every march as an example every year and you could say you know during this five-year period you can have rules run for certain periods of time during this five-year period every march go ahead and buy a new property okay or the the most common way we buy properties is buy this property when my account has a down payment and all the stuff that we need like reserves and you know um, a certain threshold in the account plus six months of reserves for my personal expenses plus four months of reserves for all the properties i already own plus six months reserves for this particular property, then go ahead and buy another, another property and do another dynamic property and do it that way. And that's the most common one that we use to do that. Okay, so here's the, what it looks like on the page. So I'm just going to go through like what the rule is what it does. So buy a property on a specific month. You use this rule to buy a property every year on a specific month. And you can do every month of every year. So if you wanted to say, hey, I want to buy a property and I want to do it every month of every year, you could do it that way. Or every January or every February, every March, so on and so forth. You could do each one. Um, and you can just do it that way. So imagine you have so when would you want to use this rule? Imagine you have a million dollars invested in an account. Let's say it's a stock market account. You're thinking you just discovered real estate investing. You're like, hey, I want to see what happens if I take the stock market account that's earning six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 15%, whatever it is for you in your stock market account that you're modeling. And you want to take that money. And every year you want to buy a new rental property with that just to see how this goes. So you could use this rule to do that to slowly drip out a down payment worth of investment into real estate over time doing this. And if you say to yourself, Hey, look, I really want to buy one every six months. You can say, okay, buy one every March with this rule. And then you could say set up a second rule that says buy one every September. And now you have two rules doing one a year in order to get that kind of two a year. Okay. So that's how you do it. All right. So buy a property when account is a down payment. This one allows you to buy a property as soon as you have enough for the down payment, plus any closing costs, Plus any reserves, and as you can see by the image on the right, there's a lot of options for you to define what this means. So you might want to define, hey, I need to have at least ten thousand dollars in this bank account, adjust for inflation or not adjust for inflation, plus six months of reserves for this property, plus three months of reserves for all the other you know properties that I own, each other property that I own, plus you know five months of personal expenses you know, um, and then only buy three properties with this rule. Stop this rule after I own three properties. So there's different things you can do to manipulate this. And there's also stuff you could say, you know, do I want to take into account my debt to income? Like make sure that my debt to income is below a certain number. Or you could say I'm buying creatively. I'm going to go buy property subject to, or I'm going to go buy properties on lease options. So debt to income doesn't matter because I'm actually buying an LLC anyway. And so ignore the debt to income ratio on that or whatever you want to do. Or maybe you say, I have a real estate agent's license, so I'm going to get paid a 3% commission when I buy these, or go ahead and take a 3% discount. And so you can do all these different variations on this stuff with this rule. Or maybe you say, look, I, I want to buy properties, but if I can do cash out refinances on the other properties I own, if they're below you know 75% debt to income, or I'm sorry, 75% loan to value, then I can go ahead and say, do cash out refinances to do it. So it's, it's very flexible in all the different ways you can use it, but realize that's what you do. So when might you want to use this? You might want to see how quickly you'll be able to acquire your ideal portfolio of rental property. So, you want to say, I want to get to 10 rentals or 10 doors or 20 doors or whatever number you pick. How quickly can I do it with my current income, my current savings rate, my current returns that I have in my accounts? And then, as I acquire each property, all the extra cash flow I get gets deposited in this account. So, it kind of compounds over time if you've got positive cash flow or slows you down a little bit if you have negative cash flow, although the cash flows do change based on all the properties. So, you could use this to determine how quickly you'll get to a certain portfolio. And then you could test things like, what if I save 10% more? Or what if I save 10% less? Or what if I got a lump sum for a bonus or a divorce or, um, you know, inheritance or whatever you want to do later on? How would this impact all that stuff? So that's one example. You might want to see the impact of changing how much you keep in reserves has on the speed you can acquire properties. So here's another example. You could say, look, if I use this rule and I say, keep six, six months of reserves for all my properties, how quickly can I acquire all the properties I want to do with that? Or... How quickly can I acquire properties if I keep 12 months of reserves? I think the market's going to get a little sketchy. Maybe I should keep 12 months of reserves. So if I do 12 months of reserves, how much does that slow me down? And how much riskier or less risky is one or the other? Or um, how, how much extra net worth will I have if I don't do 12 months of reserves or six months of reserves or two years of reserves? You pick the numbers, okay? So you can use these different rules and make copies of the scenarios to kind of test those you could see the impact of doing cash out refinances to buy new properties. We kind of talked about that little part of the rule, but you could use that as a way to do that. Uh, You can also see the impact of getting a real estate license or acquiring properties creatively. So if you want to test out, you know, now that interest rates have gone up quite a bit, and there are a whole bunch of really low interest rate properties out there, maybe you want to say, well, what if I were willing, not everyone is, to go ahead and do marketing to find motivated sellers, go buy properties creatively and buy properties that way. What impact does that have? Does it make it a lot faster? Does it make it a lot riskier? What does it look like if I go ahead and model that in a, in a variety of different ways? And, and I'll, I'll make a side note about this because I think it's important. Just because a path is optimal does not necessarily mean that that is the one you should do or that you will do, right? We, I could go and model something and I could tweak everything and say, this is the optimal path. In parentheses, if everything goes my way, if everything goes exactly the way I modeled it, right? But really, I think part of what you are doing with the software, part of what I do with the software, is I say, okay, here's kind of my plan. How does this plan perform in a variety of market conditions? What if things don't go my way? What if things get ugly? How, how do I perform with this? Is this going to really derail my life? Is this going to make it really bad? And if things go really, really well, yeah, that looks awesome. But if things go not quite as planned, if I get delayed, if I lose job, if I, you know, what all those different things that you could do, then you kind of you can go ahead and model all that stuff to do that. Um, so I don't know. That was my side note. I, I just felt compelled to tell you that. So those are some of the different ways you might use this rule to do some modeling. And if anyone has questions, feel free to ask your questions in the chat. I'll, I'll try to get to it. Now, here are all the different rules for selling properties, and since I'm going to go through all of them in detail, I'm not going to cover them here, but let's go through them one by one. All right, so here's a rule that says sell properties and pay off mortgages to retire. Here's how this rule works. If by selling some properties, let's say you have 10 properties and you want to sell off four of them, okay? If by selling off four properties and paying all the associated closing costs, you know, all the transaction costs for sale, the, the uh, depreciation recapture, your capital gains tax, your real estate commissions. If you pay all those costs, the net you'd have, if the net you'd have after paying off all these properties, you could pay off the remaining properties. So you have 10, you paid off, you, you sold four of them. Now the, the money you got after all your expenses can pay off the six remaining ones. If that would give you enough cash flow, and any money you have invested in the stock market with your safe withdrawal rate, because it takes that into account too that between the cash flow from the six paid off properties and any money you have from the stuff you have invested in your accounts with the safe withdrawal rate, you would be financially independent, then go ahead and execute this rule. This is sort of the rule if, you know, you buy more properties than you need and you let them all grow appreciation-wise and paying down the loans, you get a little bit of cash flow over time. And then eventually you get to the point where, hey, if I sold three of these that I could pay off seven, or if I sold seven of these, I could pay off the three. And by paying off the three, then that, that actually would get me over the bar of being financially independent where all the investment income I have would, would meet my minimum target monthly income in retirement. Then go ahead and do that. Instead of having a guess and check when that happens, we have a rule that says, hey, if you want to go ahead and acquire a certain number of properties, and then by paying off some of them, you could pay off the rest, by selling some of them, you could pay off the rest of them and you'll be financially independent. That's this rule. So you could use this rule to say, hey, I'm acquiring properties. Maybe I get to the point where I don't need 12, right? And so when do you get to the point where you could sell a part of the 12 and pay off the other ones in order to be financially independent with the other money in your account? Pretty cool rule, right? Like like an interesting way to do that modeling. At least I, I think it's a pretty cool rule. I like this rule a lot. Okay, so that was one rule. Here's a totally different one. Sell rental properties after owning them for a specific period of time. So this one allows you to sell all rental properties. It does not do owner-occupants. So it's only rental properties after you've owned them for a specific period of time. So let's say you're, you are acquired properties and you're doing um, lease options as an example. So you're buying properties and you think that you're gonna be holding these properties for three years and then the tenant buyer is gonna cash you out. You can go ahead and set this rule up and say, okay, I'm acquiring properties as quickly as I can. As soon as I have a down payment here, buy another one and then find a tenant buyer, a lease option tenant buyer to come in and lease it from me. And I think I'm going to sell these properties after holding them for three years. You know, some of them may be two, some maybe four, but on average, it's going to be about three years. What would that look like? And so you'd use this rule to then sell properties after holding them for whatever period of time you define, X number of months, okay? So that would be an example of doing that. So, and by the way, this one is for rental properties. It's not for owner-occupant property. So if you're thinking to yourself, hey, look, I might wanna use this rule to live in a property for two years to get the tax advantages of the two out of the last five year tax advantages where you don't have to pay capital gains up to certain limitations on that. This is not that rule. But I might have another rule coming for you if you're looking to do that strategy. That's where we're headed. Oh, wait, what's this? Sell owner-occupant properties after owning them for a specific period of time. Huh. Well, maybe this is that rule that I was just talking about. This allows you to sell an owner-occupant property, a property that you're living in after owning them for a specific period of time. So you could say, hey, I'm gonna do this model where I'm buying properties at a discount, but I'm moving into them. I'm gonna live there for at least two years. Why two years? Because there are some tax advantages for you living in an owner-occupant property for two out of the last five years. I'm not a CPA, go talk to your accountant to kind of get the details on this. But the basics of what I understand, the layman's version is, if you live in a property for two out of the last five years as an owner-occupant, and then you sell it, you are exempt from capital gains on that property up to a certain amount, and the amount changes whether you're single or you're married, okay? So this could be a way for you to do that. And when you sell the properties, we have this little section down here that says how much Do you want in closing costs when you sell how much do you want to pay in real estate commissions because you can put in what your assumptions are about those and then what is your depreciation recapture tax well if you're living in the property that's going to be zero on most of those and then what's your capital gains tax rate well if you're doing this as an owner occupant you're living there for two out of the last five years your owner your capital gains tax rate might be zero here there you go all right austin says what's your take on mini syndications on single family homes Austin, awesome. that is not on topic for this particular presentation. This presentation is on rules. So we'll be covering that. Splitting profits with investor funds to deal. So I'm not going to cover that today. Maybe we'll do a class on that in the future. I'll kind of uh, keep that in mind, but uh, not today. Sorry, got too much other stuff to cover. Okay, so that's when you might want to use sell owner-occupant properties after owning them for a specific period of time. Here's the next one. Sell rental properties after renting them for a specific period of time sell rental properties after renting them for a specific period of time so before the rule was sell rental properties after owning them for a specific period of time but if you're doing this one where you have rental properties after renting them for a specific period of time this is selling them after you've rented them so imagine for a minute you're nomadic where you're buying properties as an owner occupant living there for at least a year maybe more until you get to the point where um, you know, you've, you're know you able to buy the next property and convert that one to a rental. Well, if you use the rule before where it says sell rental properties after owning them for a period of time, you might buy a owner, you might buy the Nomad property, live there for a year and a half, then convert it to a rental. And then now that it's a rental, you've owned it now for two years. So really, that would be selling the property after six months, which isn't what you intended, I don't think. So this rule says, look, it doesn't matter when you bought it. If you lived there for a year or two years or whatever beforehand, and then you decide to rent it, this one starts the counter as to when you sell it based on when you converted it to a rental. Okay? So that's what it is there. All right. Sell rental properties based on return on equity. So this one is you're selling properties based on the return you're getting on the equity in the property. Okay, I, I got to take a step back and kind of explain to you what's going on here because this rule is crazy. It's, it's such a powerful rule. So how far back do I go? Oh man, this is crazy. Okay, so here's the deal. You own a property and let's say you get your financing on it and you put down 20% and the property value went up, I don't know, 5% in the first year. So you made 5% from appreciation on a 20% down payment. I'll, I'll put numbers to this to kind of give you a feel for it. Let's say you're buying $100,000 properties. You put down $20,000 and the property went up in value $5,000. So you made $5,000 on a $20,000 investment, which is 25% return. But what happens is over time, the amount of money you make on the property going up in value tends to increase so the next year, maybe it's $5,100. It, it, it varies, but let's just say it's a little bit more than you made the year before. However, the amount you have in the deal now is no longer $20,000. It's 20,000 plus the $5,000 that you made for appreciation plus a certain amount you have from paying down the loan. So the amount of equity you have in the property has grown more than the amount that the property is going up in value. So, So over time, the return you're getting even though the return might be increasing, the return you're getting on the equity is actually going down. The amount you make on the property compared to how much you have invested in the deal is actually going down over time. So the return on equity on a property from appreciation, from debt pay down, from flow, and from the tax benefits of depreciation, like all four areas of return, they tend to go down in aggregate. Some of them go up a little bit over time. Some of them actually go down. Some of them stay the same. But in aggregate, the overall return, the combination of all four of them, tends to go down over time. So that the longer you own a property, the lower your overall return on equity is. So when you buy a property and you're highly leveraged up front, that's the best part of your return, typically. That's the part where you're making the most money compared to how much you have invested in the deal. But as the amount you have invested in the deal increases because your equity is growing, you're paying down the loan, the property's going up in value, the equity is expanding, and the amount you're making might be going up, but not quite as fast as the equity is increasing. So so that over time, your equity drops down. So you might say to me, look, James, as I own these properties, my return on equity is dropping and dropping and dropping. What if I said, look, once it gets below a certain threshold, I want to sell that property and I want to re-leverage back up. I wanna go ahead and sell it and then I'll go buy two more or one more and wait until I have enough to buy the next one. That's what this rule allows you to do. It allows you to be maximally leveraged, not maximally because you don't wanna be selling a property every year just to kind of re-maximize your leverage, but within a reasonable range. So you can say, hey, look, once my overall return on equity, because I'm calculating return on equity on every single property every month. So once your return on equity for a property drops below a certain threshold that you set, I don't know, 10%, 12%, 15%, whatever number you pick, right? But once your return on equity drops below a certain threshold, then go ahead and sell that property, dump all the cash into a specific account, and then you can have a separate rule which buys properties whenever that account has down payments. So what will happen is You have these properties and they're growing and growing and growing. Once the return on equity drops below a certain threshold, it sells that property. Then you have another rule that takes any time. You have money in this account for enough for down payments and closing costs and reserves. Then I go ahead and I buy another property and I replace that one. Or maybe it's two properties because you have enough there to do it. So that's the way you use these rules in order to maximize your return on equity in a particular scenario. Does that make sense? Let me know if it does or doesn't. That'd be awesome. Okay. This rule is selling rental properties once your account balance drops below a certain threshold. Yeah, so James says it makes sense. James is the only one participating today. Thank you for that, I appreciate that. Okay, so, um, so imagine this. Imagine you've got a portfolio of properties and you're trying to make sure that you have enough money to kind of support yourself and you stop working before the cash flow on the properties will generate enough money for you to live on. So you're kind of operating at a deficit. You know, you have, uh, you have, you have $500,000 in your bank account, plus you've got a bunch of rentals, but eventually you draw through the $500,000 because you're a little bit short. So you could set a rule that says this. Once my $500,000 drops to the point where I only have 10000 or 50000 or 100000 whatever your comfort level is, once I get to the point where my, uh, where my account balance drops to $50,000, as an example, then go ahead and sell one rental property to boost that account balance back up. And then I'll keep dreaming on that account until I get to the point where it drops down again and then sell another property if you want to. You can kind of use that to do that. So uh, imagine a situation where you stopped working earlier than you should have before you completely are financially independent. And now you have a whole bunch of rental properties with a whole bunch of equity But you don't want to go sell those properties with equity right now. You want to go ahead and hold on to them as long as you can until the point where you need to sell them in order to put money in your account to be able to support your lifestyle. Then you could use this to model that situation. Or you could say, look, as soon as I um, get to the certain point where this account balance drops to a certain level, go ahead and sell a property because I want to be able to use that money to buy new properties, you could use that too. So this is similar to a rule that we're going to have later, where instead of selling the properties, you do a cash out refinance in order to bring your account balance back up. So these there's sort of like a pair of rules. This one is the sell the rental. You sell it, you pay all your expenses on it, your closing costs, real estate commissions, depreciation recapture tax, your capital gains tax. You can go calculate all those. And then the net gets deposited to your account or which we'll get to here in a second. There's a similar rule that says, once my account balance drops below whatever threshold you set, then go ahead and do a cash out refinance to get to those. I did a whole class where we really use these rules a lot. I compared a person who lived in a a really high cash flow market to a a person who lived in a really high appreciation market. And I showed that while it's a lot easier to get to the place you want to be when you're in a really high cash flow market, you can get there in these really high appreciation markets with a combination of selling properties or doing cash out refinances. But there's some complications with the cash out refinance, which I talk about that in that two hour class. But I think that was I think the name of that class was uh, "Cash Flow Versus Appreciation. I think that that's what the name of the class was. And I set it up as two different people competing. And go watch that if you haven't seen it before. It's, uh, it's pretty good if you're interested in this particular modeling, okay? All right, next rule. Sell properties, but only if by doing so, the money that I get from all the properties will allow me to retire based on a safe withdrawal rate. So I mentioned safe withdrawal rate earlier. I'm going to take a moment to kind of make sure everyone understands what I'm talking about. So there's this study, but it's called the Trinity study. And what it basically did is it went back through historical stock market rates of return. And it said, if you only take out 4% of of the amount of assets you have invested in stocks and bonds, then the likelihood of you running out of money in a 30-year retirement period was really, really low. That's the basics of the study. And so, what they called that four percent was a safe withdrawal rate. And I'm using "safe" in quotes because there's been some arguments that it's really not so safe. There's been arguments by the guy who came up with it that it could be a lot higher than four percent. So, really, this idea is: if you have a certain amount of money invested in stocks and bonds and maybe some cash, um, what percentage of that portfolio? If you have a million dollars, what percentage of the million dollars can you take out each year where you are less, where you where you are not very likely to run out of money? That's what a safe withdrawal rate is. So you've defined what your safe withdrawal rate is in the software. You basically say, my safe withdrawal rate is 4% or 3% or 5% or whatever number makes sense to you. And you can test these things, right? You can go ahead and run a scenario at four. You run a scenario at five. What difference does it make? Run a scenario at four. Run a scenario at three. Maybe do some market corrections in there to see how that plays out. You can do all this stuff. But this rule says, look, I've got a bunch of rental properties. And maybe I have a little bit of money invested in the stock market right now in one of the accounts in there. And so... What I want to do is I want to check each year and say, hey, look, if I sold all these rentals and I paid you know, closing costs, I paid real estate commissions if I've got any, I paid my depreciation recapture tax if I've got any, I paid my capital gains tax if I've got any, if I paid all those expenses on it, the net amount of money that I would take and I would deposit into my account balance, invest in the stock market, if I did that, would the money in the stock market allow me to retire? would my safe withdrawal rate for the amount of money I have in the stock market allow me to be financially independent? And if so, go ahead and sell the properties. Kind of a cool rule, right? You basically have all these properties you've acquired. What if you took them all and you sold them? Could you actually achieve financial independence? And this this rule tends to come up. I probably should do a class on this. This rule tends to come up when you're in a market where the cash flow you're getting, the cash on cash return you're getting, or it's actually the cash on cash return on equity you're getting is less than your safe withdrawal rate. Right. Because in in that way, the money you're getting, the the cash flow you're getting on the property you have is actually lower than your safe withdrawal rate. You'd be better taking that money and investing in the stock market according to this rule. And then who knows what will happen in real life, but at least in the mathematics of it, that it'd be better for you to actually be investing in the stock market than in in rental properties, which can happen depending on your market and and your your situation and what you've got set up there. Okay. So that's that rule. Kind of a cool one. All right. What about? Properties that you already own, and you said, Look, I planned on selling this property next Christmas anyway. You know, I I lived in it for two years, and now we're going to sell it so I can get a partial exemption on the capital gains. You know, the period of time that I lived in it, I can get an exemption on that capital gains because I had the two out of the last five years. And a lot of people think that it's, if they lived in it for two out of the last five years, they get a full exemption on it. But you may want to talk to your accountant before you put that on your tax return because I'm pretty sure that it's not what you think it is if that's what you thought it was so so anyway, you live there for two years you're going to sell it before the five-year point you're like oh this is great i'm going to go ahead and do that you can go ahead and set a rule up to say sell this particular property that i already owned on this date in the scenario really simple rule for doing that all right those are all the different rules on selling properties some pretty cool ones some kind of like really straight down the middle generic sort of things right now, let's talk about rules that impact mortgages. We'll go through one, all these one by one. Just knock the headphones off my head accidentally. All right, so pay down loans with cash flow. So maybe your strategy is, I've got all these rental properties. They're producing a bunch of extra cash flow. Maybe I've got some savings for my job and that's got some extra cash flow. I want to keep a certain amount of reserves, but anything over that amount I have in reserves, I want to take that money and I want to pay off. Uh, I want to pay off mortgages with them. That's what this rule is about. So it takes any excess cash over a threshold you set. And each month it uses that extra money to pay off mortgages on the property. So if you have you know, $7,000 more than the minimum balance that month, you can go ahead and throw it in there. And by throwing it in there, you then pay down that mortgage. And you can pick you know, which mortgages you want to do. You want to do the lowest balance. You want to do the highest balance. You want to do the lowest interest rate. You want to do the highest interest rate. You can choose which mortgages you're paying off, but this rule, then, go ahead and do that. So when might you want to use this rule? Well, if you want to do a debt snowball or a debt avalanche to pay off mortgages, you would use this rule. And you could test to see how much better it is to pay off the highest interest rate mortgage versus the lowest balanced mortgage or the, or the lowest interest rate mortgage. And you could see which one's better and how much better it is for you. James says, there's no 1031 exchange rule for selling. Well, a 1031 exchange rule is just about how much you pay in taxes. So we have the ability for you to adjust How much you pay in taxes on the property. And then you can go ahead and and use that rule and set the taxes to be equal to zero for that. But then you got to track how much you would have had to pay in taxes on that one. So there's no like, there's no like keeping track of how much. Deferred taxes you have on a particular property—something I might add in the future—but you can set the threshold to be I'm not paying any taxes on this one uh, when I sell it. Um, so uh, and yet my extra my fees are an extra you know thousand dollars to do the 1031. So you can do 1031 exchanges. It's just not a specific rule for 1031 exchanges. If that makes sense. Good question, though. Good question. Okay, so pay down loans with cash flow. That's how that works. Okay, pretty simple. However, every time you make a payment on a particular loan, it doesn't actually improve your cash flow in the short term, unless you pay off the loan completely and then it improves it by a big chunk. But it doesn't improve your cash flow because by paying down the loan, all you're really doing is moving in the date that that loan gets paid off from where it was to closer. So it'll be paid off sooner, but your monthly payment stays the same. So it doesn't improve cash flow on a property. Um, so you might say to yourself, hey, and, and and I'll add this one other thing, and the amount of money you're earning on that extra cash flow you're doing is the interest rate of the loan. So if you're taking your money and you're paying down a 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, 7% mortgage on a property, the amount that that money is earning is the amount of your mortgage interest rate. So if you're paying off 3% loans with that, you're earning 3% on that money. You're paying off 7% loan, you're paying on that money. Okay. So the idea is the more you're paying off on those properties until you pay it completely off, it doesn't really benefit you in the short term. It benefits you when you pay off the loan, which could then compound and help you in the future on other properties you're doing, but it doesn't benefit you in the short term by improving your cash flow. And so you might say to yourself, well, why would I go take this extra money that doesn't help me in the short term? Why don't I let that grow in something else I'm invested in like either more rental properties or stock market or I don't know, whatever you want to do, crypto, uh, bonds, you know, wh- whatever you want to do there, hard money lending. You could go ahead and take that money and invest it in something else and get a higher return. That way, once you get enough money in this other account where you could completely pay off the mortgage, not just make a little dent in it, you know, pay off $500 on it, but say, look, I've got a thou- I got $100,000, I'm going to pay off this mortgage in full. And by doing that, you then get the all the cash flow from having that mortgage payment go away. That's what this rule does. So this rule says, look, only pay off a mortgage when I can pay it off in full from a specific account. So it tests to see if the amount you have in your account plus whatever threshold you have there. So look, always keep $15,000 in this account, but if I've got enough to pay off a mortgage and remain $15,000 in this account, then go ahead and pay off the mortgage. So that's what this rule allows you to do. And then which mortgage you wanna do, the lowest balance, the highest balance, the lowest interest rate, the highest interest rate, whatever one you wanna do, and it'll kind of do which properties you wanna do it that way. But this allows you to go ahead and say, Keep this money invested in whatever the stock market bonds until I have enough to pay off the mortgage and then do that. Kind of a cool rule. All right. Remember earlier, we talked about recasting mortgages. It's that thing where you walk into the bank with $10,000. You pay them a fee in order to lower your monthly payment, not change when the loan gets paid off, but you give them $10,000 and say, look, I'd like to lower my monthly payment by a little bit. And they're like, okay, yeah, we'll do the calculation. And we'll do that for you. It'll take this thing." Well, this is a rule for recasting mortgages. So you could take a lump sum of money go into the lender and ask them to recast the mortgage. And so this rule allows you to go ahead and recast them. Okay, that's what that rule does. All right, remember before I told you about selling properties based on the account balance? If my account balance gets so low, they go ahead and sell a property to replenish that account balance so I have money to live on or money to invest somewhere else. This is the kind of sister rule for that cash out refi based on account balance. So when your account balance gets to a certain point where it's really, really low, they go ahead and do a cash out refinance on a property, pull all that money out, deposit it into the account, and you'll be able to then have all the money in that particular account um, to use to do whatever you want with, okay? So I think I have your, when would you want to use it? If you're modeling a situation where you're stopped working before your cash flow is enough to support your lifestyle, you might need to cash out refi properties from time to time to provide living expenses, to kind of make up for that difference or use the equity properties to occasionally fund the purchase of new properties by refinancing. So you could say, look, once I get to a, you know, this low account balance, go ahead and do a refi on a property to get the account balance up to where I can do a new purchase. Kind of an interesting rule. All right. So this leads me to explain this interesting concept. And so I, I need to explain it to you, but I'm going to take a, a drink first. All right. So imagine you said to yourself, look, I really want to earn, I don't know, $10,000 a month. And if I was earning $10,000 a month, I would consider myself financially independent. Because $10,000 a month would be able to cover all my personal expenses, including the mortgage I have on my owner-occupant property um, and anything else I need, right? So $10,000 a month, that's my number. That's my, my target income to be financially independent, target income in retirement. But what if you didn't have a mortgage on your owner-occupant property? Would you need that $10,000 anymore? And you say to yourself, no, I wouldn't. So I I can either have $10,000 if I have a mortgage on my owner-occupant property, or I only need $8,000 if I don't have a mortgage on my personal property anymore. And so the the software allows you to select whether or not to move your financial independence number down when you pay off your owner-occupant mortgage or not. And so if you have that triggered, which is in the scenario section. This rule becomes super interesting because what this rule says is, look, if I'm close to my $10,000 a month number, my target monthly income number in retirement, but I have enough cash in my account balance or stocks or whatever it is in my account balance that I could pay off my owner-occupant mortgage. And if I did that, I would be financially independent, then go ahead and do it. So this is a situation where the passive income you have coming in from your stocks and all the cash flow and all the rental properties is really close to your number. You know, it's at 80% or 85%. But you have enough extra cash lying around somewhere where you could pay off your owner occupant mortgage because the balance is low enough that that would actually lower the amount you need and it would trigger you being financially independent. Then go ahead and pay off the owner occupant mortgage. That's what this rule does pay off owner occupant mortgage if FI, financially independent. All right, these are gonna be really quick. These are the rules that allow you to adjust values on your scenario or on different accounts you have or on different properties you have, okay? So set value on scenarios. What this rule does, it allows you to change any values you defined for the scenario at different points in the scenario. So originally you thought your safe withdrawal rate was gonna be 4%, but 10 years later you say, hey, look, now I want my safe withdrawal rate to be 3%. You'd use this rule to run 10 years later and change your safe withdrawal rate number from 4% to 3%, as an example. Or you defined your um your, your refinance mortgage interest rate in your scenario as 5%, which is low now, but at the time it seemed reasonable. And now you're like, look, in the future, I want this to be 7%. You can use that to change that too. You can use this to set value on scenarios to do it at some point in the future. Or you want to say hey, look my minimum target monthly income retirement threshold is now four thousand dollars but i want it to be five thousand dollars in five years from now you can do stuff like that or your safe withdrawal rate number as i, I use as an example this is that rule that allows you to do that the set value on accounts does the same idea on accounts though so let's say you were you were earning one percent on savings at the start of the scenario but you think that's abnormally low and by you know, three years in the future, that should really be at least 2% or 3%. You could use this rule to say, set the value on the account, set the return I'm getting on that account to go from 1% to three years later and on to be 3%. Or you say, I want to set it to 1% now, but a year from now, I want it to be 2%. And a year from then, I want it to be two, 3%. And then you could use it to do stuff like that. Or the other thing it could do is you could set it to be a random number. You could say, look, the return on my savings account is going to be somewhere between One percent and three percent have it change monthly by somewhere between this range, or add a little bit to it, or subtract a little bit to it each month. You could do a whole bunch of things with making it random to simulate the stock market, or what you're getting on savings, or you know what your business return might be if you're using an account to store kind of business stuff, or bonds, or anything like that. So you could use it to do random numbers as well if you wanted to. Same idea, but setting values on properties. You could say, look. My, my property appreciation rate is now at 1% because I don't think property values are going up in the next couple of years, but three years from now, I think the market's going to be normal and we're going to set it to be equal to 3% from there. So you can have a, like a period of time where property properties are appreciating at a slower rate or at a faster rate. And then you could change it to be something else later. You can do the same thing with your rent appreciation rate You could also do things where you hire or fire a property manager and set it from zero to 10 or zero to eight or zero to whatever. You could also do maintenance on a property. You say, look, it's just a brand new property I bought. So maintenance is going to be low for the first couple of years. And then maintenance will increase. You can go ahead and do that too. So this rule allows you to set values on properties over time and change those. And then if you go ahead, you change these things, but you're like, look, then I want it to return to whatever was normal at the very, very beginning. We have a rule that says reset the original value on the count. So if I was doing 1%, then I was screwing around with it for a whole bunch of years. And then after 10 years, I wanted to go back to whatever was set at the very beginning. We have a reset original value on accounts rule and a reset original value on properties rule for you to go ahead and mess with those. All right. I think this is the last section. Maybe not. (laughs) We'll see. So any questions, we'll use this as a, a pausing point. Any questions? Is this good? Need me to slow down, speed up? Is this helpful? Anything? Nothing. So good so far. Okay, awesome. Again, James is the only one participating. I appreciate that, James. Everyone else is sort of just, I don't know, voyeur voyeurism or whatever they call it when you kind of like just watch things. Okay, cool. All right. So here are a whole bunch of uh, rules that do other things. So add to or subtract from the account balance. Let's say you're like, hey, look, I got this account. I know I'm going to get a bonus that's going to come in, a one-time deal or an inheritance that's going to come in at you know 16 months in the future. I want to be able to have a way for you to add a lump sum to your account or pull a lump sum out and say, look, I, I know that I'm going to have this big payoff uh, for a lawsuit or something like that. I'm going to need to pay out a certain amount of money. Then I can go ahead and subtract this amount of money from my account at that point in the future. Or you're going to have a series of expenses like college tuition for kids. You could use a rule like this to model. I'm going to have this come out on this date. I'm going to have two kids going to college at this point. So I need to have this amount of money. And you could use it to kind of like move money in and out for these irregular expenses um, to do that. Or you pay a certain amount on installment sale of a business or from a lottery winnings or whatever. You can use that to do all that stuff. All right, transfer money between accounts. So you have money in the retirement accounts or you have money in a regular account that you want to move to a retirement account. You can move money around between accounts using this rule. Uh, Or you have money in your rental property account and you want to use that to invest in your tax-deferred retirement account. You can move money from those things. Or you want to pull money out of one account when a certain account drops below a certain threshold. So you say to yourself, look, I I have this reserves savings account that I'm never going to use unless my account drops really low in this other account. Let's go ahead and move them when something happens to do that. So you can set up those rules to do those things. All right, here's that market correction rule I was telling you about. So this allows you to model... What what could happen if your market corrects? If your account balance or your properties all are affected by these things, you could do that. So this allows you to change um, the amount that is in accounts, accounts that you select. So it doesn't have to be all of them. Like a savings account may not be impacted, but a stock market account might be affected uh, by a, a market correction. And which properties you want to have impacted by this thing. And then by how much. And you can have some of these be random. So you can have how frequently it happens be random, or you can have the amount that it declines be random. And if you need to do one random and one static, you can have two of these rules running and only impacting one or different things to do that. So that's all about different market corrections. And if you're really trying to see how resilient your portfolio is to different market corrections, this is what you want to be playing with. You want to be able to see, okay, you know, I'm going to do this strategy and the strategy sounds awesome, right? I'm going to be Buying properties and maximizing my loan of value and minimizing the amount of money I have in a deal and keeping really, really low reserves to kind of make it go really, really well. Well, let's see how that performs with market corrections. Or I'm going to buy properties free and clear, not going to have any mortgages on them at all. It's going to be slow and steady, wins the race. And uh, let's see how that impacts is impacted by market corrections. And then you can compare those two strategies and you can see, oh, this one gets me there faster, but you know, it fails sometimes. <laughs> you know, I run out of money. I have to, I have to file bankruptcy or you know, you know, foreclosure. So you know, that sort of thing can happen if I, you know, have market corrections. But this one tends not to happen as much, or tends not to happen at all. And so you could say maybe I don't do that one strategy, or maybe I, I kind of hold it back a little bit um, and see how it goes. But it's up to you. It's, it's really your strategy and you're testing it and you're seeing how it performed. Okay. All right, here's the one you're probably going to use in almost every scenario that you set up, your paycheck and your personal expenses. And a lot of times we'll set up a separate rule for each person's paycheck, like one spouse and the other spouse, and then a shared personal expense one that you're going to do. And we usually set them up as three rules. You could do them all as one if you really wanted to, but I, I tend to separate them out just to make it a little easier. So what this rule does, allows you to model receiving a paycheck or other regular income. It doesn't have to be a paycheck, but it could be I'm getting regular payments of a certain amount. If you doing, you don't need to do this for rental properties because the rental property stuff does its own thing. Um, and, and the personal living expenses. So you might want to use this uh, to model each one of your paychecks and then which ones of those go away when you're financially independent, you stop working. You could set this rule up that says, hey, look, I get this paycheck. It's this amount. But as soon as I am financially independent, stop giving me this paycheck and it'll automatically turn it off for you so that you no longer get it, okay? Um, and then you could use it later if you wanted to to model social security If you don't want it to count towards your income to qualify for being financially independent. So we have another rule specifically for Social Security, which does count towards your financial independence number. But if you're like, look, I don't believe Social Security is going to be there. It's nice if it is. Let's go ahead and model that Social Security, but don't count it toward my uh, financial independence number at all. You would probably want to use that sort of like a fake paycheck. From Social Security, okay. So you could use that to model that too. And so to do, do Social Security, you just have this rule start at whatever date you'd qualify for Social Security and have it run through the end of the scenario doing that, okay? Passive income. This is the one where uh, you could do Social Security with, but it does other things as well. So passive income models things like Social Security, pensions from jobs, and annuities. So if you went and you bought an annuity and you're getting whatever it is, two thousand dollars a month from the annuity that you purchase, you could use that to model this. And you could go ahead and uh, it's it's very similar to your paycheck one, except this does count in your calculation for being financially independent or not. Okay, so you model social security and and uh, pensions and annuity income from that. Lumpy income. Let's say you're like Ben and you flip properties, and you want you want to have lumpy income come in from every time you flip property. Maybe you flip a property every six months or every three months or every four months or every month or whatever it is that you do. So you can use this to be what I call lumpy income, irregular income that comes in in kind of big chunks. So if you have a fix and flip business or you get irregular bonuses from your job or you want to simplify modeling lease options where you don't want to put the properties in there and hold them and stuff, you say, look, I'm doing this lease option business. Every three years or so, I get $30,000 or $50,000 or whatever your number is. Then I want to model it like that. You could use the lumpy income rule to model things like that. So you could say, I get $50,000 every time I do a flip or $20,000 every time I do flip, depending on your market and your your profit margins and stuff like that. But you could use it to do stuff like irregular income to say every X number of months, I get this lump sum of money coming in. Rebalance uh, your portfolio. So this one allows you to say, okay, I've got three accounts. I've got an account for stocks. I've got an account for bonds. I've got an account for cash. And every year I want to move money around such that I always have whatever. 50% in stocks, 30% in bonds, and 20% in cash. Use this rule that every January or March or May or whatever you want to it up that you go ahead and, and readjust your rules, your accounts to be this percentage, this percentage, this percentage, and you move the money from one account to another to be able to rebalance your portfolio to keep them where they need to be. If you have a retirement account that has required minimum distributions, you'll wanna use this rule to do the required minimum distributions. So basically it does a calculation for you to tell you what percentage of the account you need to take out that year. And then when you wanna take it out, you pick a month and then every year it does the calculation based on your uh, life expectancy and your tax rate. uh, Oh, your life expectancy. And then you can put a tax rate as to how much you get taxed coming out. So you could do required minimum distributions with that as well. And that, my friends is the end. I only went three minutes over. But I hope that was helpful. I hope that really gave you a good idea of all the different things you could do and all the different ways to model your situation with the rules that we have in the Real Estate Financial Planner software. Yeah, Richard says, thanks, James. A lot of info here. Exactly. I try to give you guys good info. I really do. I try to give you good stuff. So, Any final questions from all of the really quiet people on things? It's almost as if Thanksgiving's tomorrow. Almost. Yeah. Ben says, awesome. I hadn't looked into the rules before. Very powerful. <laughs> yes. Thank you. It is very powerful. I agree. So you guys are very welcome. Uh, any final questions before I let you all go, get ready to celebrate and enjoy Thanksgiving with your families. Nothing oh, so What is this? What is this? You're very welcome. Very welcome. Is it a deal? A deal. Thank you very much. A deal, a deal. That's a great name to be like in a real estate investing kind of person. There you go. Thanks for doing these classes. You miss miss the ones in person, but this is great. You are very, very welcome. James says, no questions. Good material. What is the software you're using? It's the real estate financial planner software, realestatefinancialplanner.com. It is the software I wrote to be able to do this modeling. So it's not like off the shelf software. I programmed it for you. I, I did it as my service to you. So there you go. It's available on the website, realestatefinancialplanner.com. Go create a free account and you can do all this modeling. And and honestly, you don't need to start from scratch. I'll probably do a whole class on this, but um, if you go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, just pick your city. And I've made some sample scenarios for you to start from. Go ahead and just copy that right into your own account and then just edit. That way you don't have to go create everything from scratch. You can say, oh, I see this a property here. Let me go ahead and change this to be closer to what my properties are and, and go ahead and do that. Yeah, James says, cool, I'll start modeling this weekend. Yeah, let me know if you have questions, that'd be good. All right, folks, thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. Have a great Thanksgiving and I will see you all post-Thanksgiving. Bye-bye for now, thank you all. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. cash flow on rental properties in New Bedford is harder than ever.